This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Imagine you're on a beautiful desert island. You've unplugged from the digital world. No cell phone, no Twitter, no Facebook, no radio, and no TV. You can only take with you five books. Which five books would you choose and why? These are the questions we're asking the faculty on Season 3 of Office Hours. Joining us on the island today is Dr. Ryan Glomsrud, Associate Professor of Historical Theology at Westminster Seminary, California. Here it is D. Phil at Oxford with a study on Karl Barth. He just completed a postdoctoral fellowship at Harvard. He's a graduate of Westminster Seminary, California, and Wheaton College. He's executive editor of Modern Reformation Magazine and contributing editor to Engaging with Bart and Always Reformed, Essays in Honor of W. Robert Godfrey. These titles are available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Ryan, and welcome to the island. Hey, Scott. You can only take five books with you on this desert island. <laughs> only five. And I, I reject I, the premise. I can, I can see that you brought more than five, so clearly you didn't pay attention to the, the It's hard. The memo. I don't know. But which five books are you taking with you and why? It really is a hard question. I don't know. You, you have to ask my wife. I, I never travel anywhere with just five books. But the question here is, of the books that have most deeply affected you and that you would want to read again and again. Yeah, I know. Which five would you take with you? We're assuming that we already have the Bible yes. on our desert island. Yeah, we're stipulating as a matter of course that you have. I've memorized most of it, of course. That you have your Bible. It's hidden away in my heart and mind. That's a good thing. <laughs> okay, I really want to start with the five books that are on the top of my must-read as soon as possible. Because if I were traveling anywhere, that's probably what I'd have with me. Okay. It was a close call between number four and five. Would you rather be stuck with Zinzendorf or Bellarmine? I don't know. Or Zwingli on the Supper. <laughs> These are interesting questions, aren't they? You might actually learn something from Bellarmine. True. He was very intelligent and very thoughtful. I haven't read enough Zinzendorf. And indirectly, you could learn, yeah, you could learn about reform stuff, Protestant stuff going on as he cites and critiques and interacts. Fine. Start with your anti-list, and then we'll get to your, your Well, list. I already said most of them. Zinzendorf, Swingley, and the Supper. What were you asking? Tell me the five books you would like to have with you. Well, oh, yeah. So we, but we already said we're starting with the five books I'd want to read right now. Okay, that's that fine. I have not read. So you got on the ship, and you had five books that you wanted to read on the trip. Mm -hmm. And you were shipwrecked, and here you are on the island. What? I'd start with Greg Beale's Biblical Theology of the Dwelling Place of God, the Temple, and the Church's Mission. I've not read it, but I've heard really good things about it. It's a good, sizable book. I think there are too many thin books out these days. I like uh, something a little meatier, and this is a couple hundred pages. This, uh, I'm sure, represents uh, a lot of careful thought and reflection. I'd probably start with that. You didn't expect me to say that, did you? A biblical theology textbook. I guess it's not a textbook for a historian. The difficulty of doing the interview that you want to do is that you don't know anything about the books that you propose to discuss. <laughs> <laughs> we, we have a half an hour to fill, and it's, and it's going to be a lot easier to discuss books that you have read and with which you've developed uh, and for which you've developed some affection. You're so uh, demanding, really. 
I thought actually asking academics to discuss five books for a half an hour would be pretty easy. It is easy. That's the thing. I'd like to discuss like 15 or 20. Well, we'll do five and then we'll end the tape and you can keep going. No, the second book I'd really like to read as soon as possible is Susan Schreiner's new book, Uncertainty in the Early Modern Era. She's a fantastic historian, and it's a topic that's been of more than a little interest to me of late. There's also a new book out by an intellectual historian from Harvard, Peter Gordon, on Martin Heidegger and Ernst Cassir called Continental Divide. It's about one of their famous meetings at Davos. Before Davos was known for the World Economic Forum, it was a meeting and gathering place for intellectuals and they'd ski all day and discuss philosophy at night and this is one of the major collisions in 20th century philosophy that's been sort of allegorized ever since then but that's definitely on my to-do list the other one is just a new book that i found in a uh, used bookstore recently it's an edited book by david d hall not the same as David W. Hall, on the antinomian controversy in New England from 1636 to 1638, which actually looks pretty interesting. You know, everyone knows about Anne Hutchinson and receiving revelations from God and so on and so forth. But there was also a real theological debate going on about legalists and moralists. And someone was fined like 40, 40 pounds or something for accusing the ministers in Massachusetts of preaching a covenant of works. Of course, the establishment responded. It became a big debate about antinomianism, about a, sort of a referendum on congregationalism because of the perceived liberty to question ministers and to hold private meetings to discuss theological topics. So uh, I'm looking forward to, to reading that. I don't know how many that is, but probably want to get to that's the four. Real. Oh, that's four? What would be the fifth one? Oh, I know. I really want to read... Dermot McCulloch's biography of Thomas Cranmer. It was out a few years ago. It's not a new book, and it won several awards. But uh, I've been thinking about the English Reformation of late, and uh, it's certainly one of the better-known biographies. You're listening to Office Hours. From Westminster Seminary, California. Your anti-list raises an important question, which is this. How does one go about deciding what to read? In other words, what are the criteria that one establishes or uses to decide what to read and what's the motivation for myself i think i pick books because i I think they're well written or i'm engaged in research and i'm trying to overcome my insurmountable ignorance about some question or something i'm trying to learn something i don't know or maybe fulfill an assignment or something how do you go about deciding what you want to read you know that's a hard one you didn't give me that question in advance i didn't give you (laughs) any of the questions in advance that's true it's amazing i knew to bring a, a few books with me, though. No, that is a tough question. It makes me actually think of a C.S. Lewis quote. I think it was Lewis who said, when we buy a book, we're actually buying the time to read them or something like that, or we think we're buying the time to read them. We're lying to ourselves frequently, especially <laughs> in this day and age. That's true. I used to have a shelf of books I want to read, and as soon as I'd buy something, I'd stick it on that shelf. But it grew into two shelves, and it grew into three shelves. And and now it constitutes your library. Now, that's nasty. That's the reality. I have an office full of books that I would I've like read, read one or two of them really carefully. Well, see, the beautiful thing about being on the island is you're unplugged from the cell phone, from Twitter, Facebook, and television, well, actually, and all of the distractions. So that's you, you, true. You have time now. I did want to ask you about that, though. Is why not music? We need music on the island. 
Your daughter's a musician, for goodness sakes. That would get us into another episode called Desert Island Discs, which is what we're ripping off here for Desert Island Books. I would really like music to have quietly in the background while I read. Well, you have the music of the ocean. Nothing popular or contemporary. Something old could stand the test of time. You have the music of the ocean. You have what I'd really like nature, is birds. Like Mahler's Fourth Symphony. Okay. So <laughs> which five books would you uh, like to have with you with which you are familiar and would no, like to No, you started out with a question about, well, how do I choose what books oh, I yes. choose? Who's interviewing who here? <laughs> Who's interviewing whom? It's the one who has some mastery of English grammar. So the question is, how do you decide what it is you're going to read or by what criteria? Like you mentioned, frequently I feel like I'm plugging holes, plugging gaps. There's something I don't know, some era or debate or controversy that I feel like I'm still in the dark and have some catch-up to do. So a lot of times reading lists are generated by just wanting more information about something. Although I also, you know, I like to go where the action's at. Sometimes if there's a controversial book, even if it's out of my field or something else, I like to dip into it and sort of see what the fresh criticisms, the hot new theses are. If it generates some kind of commotion at a conference, it'll probably be published. That's what Godfrey always says, and I think that's probably true. It helps you to think about your own work, to think about how people are harvesting old arguments and debates, old theses and bringing them into the present and old scholarship interacting with new. And, and that's certainly true. But I also like just reading for entertainment and personal enrichment. Frequently, you'll hear these days to pick one theologian and master them. And I've always thought that was really good advice. <laughs> I've never taken anyone up on that suggestion, but I'd probably have read more Karl Barth than of most other theologians. But I do also really like Turretin. He's one who's on my real list, if you actually want to talk about the real list of five books. Okay, here you are on the island. You've washed up. You've got five books with you that happily you've read. You're familiar with them. And these are books you want to reread. What are they and why? Well, the hard one is really theology. In that category, I really couldn't make up my mind, so I brought a few books with me and decided I'd evaluate it while we're doing the interview so there could be some real live action here. So... If you were restricted to five books that you have read and would enjoy reading again, which five would those be? Okay. You're going to have to pull it out of me. I'm going to give you five categories first, and then we'll go back through. Definitely, I need a serious work of theology. But I also want a history book. I want a biography. I want something challenging and philosophical. And I want a novel. So that makes it hard. All right. Well, let's start with theology. Well, the front runners. You had to pick one volume. One volume. You will be rescued. And eventually you will be able to read other volumes. But for the brief, quiet in the meantime on mm-hmm. the island, mm-hmm. you can only have one. What would it be? Would I have to use any of them for the bonfire to no, bring the not. rescue ships? No, there's lots of driftwood. Oh, that's good. You know, I thought the first one that came to mind was Augustine's Confessions. That's probably the least likely final choice, but there are numerous things that you can wrestle and chew on in Augustine's Confessions. I'll sort of never forget thinking about now, this will sound somewhat philosophical, but bear with me. Space and time and Augustine wrestling with why does he feel so alienated from God when spatially he knows God is everywhere and spiritual estrangement, what does that mean? But in the end, bond with Christ produced by the Holy Spirit is, uh, there's another saying, I don't think this is actually in the confession, maybe Calvin or someone else, but Christ is as far away as the word preached. Well, the Apostle Paul says something to, to that effect. <laughs> 
That's true. Augustine's discussion of the nature of time is one of the most interesting things I ever read. I remember where I was when I read that. I can still see the page. Yeah. Where were you? I was in university. I was yeah, at home. same here. I was sitting on the floor, leaning against a big pillow, reading it for a college course. Same here. I read it in my dorm room. It was an odd sort of book. I didn't know what I was getting into, and I didn't know um, what to expect exactly. And I didn't know what to make of it because it's sort of cast in terms of a prayer to God. It's a little too introspective here and there. And yet God's transcendence, God's sovereignty, grace is in the end what it ends up being all about. It was the most personal book I think I ever read. It was disturbingly personal. But I'm going to cancel that off the list because it it almost slides into biography. But I thought about it. That's all I wanted to say. I thought about bringing it. The other one I thought about bringing was Ursinus's commentary on the Heidelberg. Which is a very different kind of book. Very different. But one can never stop trying to catechize oneself. One never comes to an end of being catechized. And if I had a half an hour to dip into any theology book, it would probably be the commentary. You can almost open to any page and get a lot out of it in 15 minutes. Plus, then I'd have the Heidelberg with me, too. That would be great. Which is sort of cheating, but... So far, so far, <laughs> it's you, like a two for one. You haven't exactly followed the rules. No, I know, but uh, uh, so I also thought about Turretin, but in the end, decided I'd most like to have the marrow of modern divinity with me right now. So I think we're learning that you have a bit of an antinomian streak. So I suggest that you concentrate. No, no, no on the, it's not on the, that. I, the second I, uh, half of the marrow. Yeah. Well, oh, I'm sorry. I was thinking of the marrow of theology. You, you said the marrow of modern divinity. Yeah. No, no, no. Okay, not what, is it that, what is it that attracts you to the marrow of modern Well, divinity? even if left to myself on a desert island, I wouldn't want to become a legalist or a moralist. I already mentioned that I'm interested in the New England antinomian controversy. But, of course, you know, it was originally published in the 17th century, but then republished by Thomas Boston. And his notes, I think, are very interesting. So it's nice to have—that's another two-for-one. You have the marrow and you have Thomas Boston's, you know, commentary on it. Have you seen the new edition from Mentor? No, I haven't. I've got this uh, print-on-demand version that's old and outdated. I highly recommend the relatively new edition from Mentor, which you can get in the bookstore. At Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. In the beginning, God said, let there be, and there was. God the Father created through his word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God the Son is the word. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. God the Spirit works through the preaching of the Word. For 31 years, Westminster Seminary, California has stood for the truth and reliability of God's Word. Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu, 760-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. What historical volume? would you take with you? Philip Benedict's Christ's Church's Purely Reformed a Social History of Calvinism. Why? It's just a fantastic read. He's a brilliant social historian of the best kind. Sometimes as historical theologians, you and I are aware of the major works in social history, but tend to focus on the more serious intellectual history, historical theology books. But it's a fantastic treatment covering several different geographic regions, studying Calvinist churches over time. The Eastern European chapters are fascinating. The the chapters on England and Scotland are are interesting. It's just a really well-written book, and the back half of it is on 
discipline, the nature of the consistory in Geneva. And it's just really an interesting book. I think there's lots in there to read and reread and read for inspiration, read for warnings. So this is what went wrong. And it's thick. It's not necessarily a quick read. So that's probably what I'd bring. That was the only book on the history side that I came up with. Which biography would you take with you? Heiko Obermann's Luther biography, Man Between God and the Devil. That was the first biography I ever read of Luther, and it's a pretty thrilling read. And funny, too. It's brilliant. Yeah. Probably the best single English-language comprehensive biography of Luther. Yeah. Lots of biographies of Luther, but— It's the kind of biography that has some serious theology in it, but that you can give to a layperson who's just interested in the Reformation, who was this Luther guy. I mean, it's a bit of a heavy slog for the completely uninitiated. But it's very readable. But it's very readable. I mean, it actually tells a story. There's real drama to it. I mean, you could almost compare it with uh, the John Adams— David McCullough book or something like that. It could be in Barnes and Noble. It probably is. It, it probably is. One caveat: his account of Luther on Scripture is completely wrong. He doesn't account for any of the confessional Lutheran scholarship on Luther and Scripture, and he recasts Luther as a sort of proto-Bardian. And interestingly, that's a shortcoming. He gives no real references to sources or even, as I recall, secondary literature. I usually warn the students, read Obermann, read everything really by Obermann, particularly that volume with that caveat. What philosophical volume would you take with you? We hadn't finished, had we? Oh, we finished. You're going to cut out that whole proto-Bardian business, right? No, I don't remember reading that at all. Oh, it is. He's got a couple of pages in there where he recasts Luther. You know, he goes after what he regards as fundamentalism. Ah. And recasts Luther as this sort of neo-Orthodox theologian of the word. Yeah, yeah. And Luther isn't. Yeah. He may have been a little more mystical, though, than than Calvin or the rest. Oh, I think that's probably true. That's not really in question. But what's in question is Luther's attitude towards the Bible as a book, as the Word of God. Yeah. Does it become the Word of God? You know, no, not for Luther. Is it a revelation encounter and an existential event? Well, there are existential aspects to it, and yes, there are event aspects to one's That's probably true. I wouldn't call him proto-Bardian necessarily. I mean, I have no idea what Obermann's theological convictions were. I just mean that Obermann makes Luther Mm -hmm. sound and look proto-Bardian or neo-Orthodox. It's maybe three pages out of the whole thing. Okay, so which philosophical volume would you like to Well, have this you? was a tie again. Either Heidegger's Being in Time or Kierkegaard's Either Or. They're obviously very different books. I couldn't really decide if I wanted something to really wrestle with that I probably wouldn't be able to digest while on the island, and that would be Being in Time. Or if I wanted something that was— That would be sort of fitting, though, for being on an island, perhaps yeah. reading Heidegger on Being in Time. Not that I have, but it sounds like it would be an appropriate sort of wouldn't thing. Wouldn't it? I know. With Mahler's Fourth Symphony in the background. Do you have a CD player with you or a Apple pod? Your iPod, yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'd probably, in the end, end up with Kierkegaard because it'd be nice to have some entertainment on and the island. there's more humor in Kierkegaard? Oh, than... yeah. Absolutely. In either or. I mean, it's a challenging and somewhat fanciful book. There are multiple authors, different voices. There's a collection of different genres, and it's very entertaining. I mean, some of it is funny. I mean, there's letters. There's a diary, the diary of the seducer. There are minutes from a meeting of a secret society. All these collection of different different texts are discovered in a desk, so the author and the editor claims, and he piles them together. But it's about aesthetic modes of life and ethical modes of life. So in its own way, it sounds once again like another volume that is really multiple volumes. 
Yeah. You found yet another way to <laughs> smuggle more than five books onto this island. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. And so what novel would you like to have with you? Well, this is hard to. Probably Lord of the Rings. Can I have all three? Does that count? Yes. It's a work. Mm -hmm. You can have a single work. Either that or uh, The Magic Mountain. Tomas Mann. I couldn't decide. If you had to pick. Probably. Now that I've moved to Southern California, I'm interested in Tomas Mann. Why? Because he lived in L.A. after leaving Germany during the Second World War, or at the outset. There was a whole collection of German and German-Jewish intellectuals who moved to Orange County. In fact, there's a couple of books about the OC and the surprising intellectual life that cropped up in the 1940s and 50s. Nobody who lives in Southern California refers to Orange County as the OC. Actually... There's a connection here, too, between Tomas Mann and Gustav Mahler that you may not know. No, I'm serious. I, I don't know, I admit. No, Tomas Mann uh, modeled one of his characters on Gustav Mahler. Gustav von Aschenbach uh -huh. is actually Gustav Mahler. He was inspired by him. What is there about Mann's work? And Mahler. Well, but particularly Mann's work that would make you want to take it. Well, I love that time period. I and mean, it's right there at the turn of the century, thinking about Mahler as much as Mann. But it's about late romanticism and modernity and the clash of the two and all of the political upheaval and turmoil that will unfold in the early part of the 20th century. I mean, the Magic Mountain is also a bit of an allegory about different streams of European thought being represented by different characters who are in a sanatorium in Switzerland. So it almost it's a philosophical book. It's a Bildungsroman. Which means? <laughs> a novel of self-formation, which is this kind of classic German way of writing a novel. It's about a quest of self-discovery and so on and so forth. And I think I see one more, because you brought six or seven books with you, and I see one more underneath Kierkegaard. That's Heidegger. He's a little guy. He has a somewhat Hitler-like mustache there, doesn't he? He was ridiculed initially when he arrived in Davos because, I don't know how much you know about Heidegger. Nothing. He cultivated this loyalty to a rural agrarian Germany. And so he wore this very folkish, outdated wool suit and spent the entire day skiing intensely while everyone else socialized, chit-chatted and had cocktails on the porch and maybe did one sort of afternoon ski run. Heidegger was up as early as he could be, skied all day, skied right into the chalet lodge and delivered his lecture in his ski outfit. While everyone else had put on black ties and had their long dinner and then, you know, adjourned to the, the lecture hall to, to have the evening lecture from, from Kassir, who represented the establishment. But Heidegger was this upstart, slightly rebellious young philosopher at the time. When did he die? Heidegger? 60s, late 60s. It's a good question, actually. I'm not sure. And while you're looking that up, let me ask you one more question. One of the assumptions I allowed for the purposes of this series is the continued existence and, in some ways, superiority of the book. I didn't stipulate, for example, you could take your Kindle or your iPad. A lot of people wouldn't necessarily share that assumption. And it's becoming a fairly widely held view that the days of the book are numbered and may be coming to an end very soon. What do you think about the future of the book? Of course, as soon as I bought my iPad, they released the iPad too, and so that's discouraged me from ever wanting to buy another one again. In answer to your question, it is—it's a good question. Certainly, it's an ongoing debate and discussion. There's a book out 
This would be one of those books on my to read as soon as possible by Robert Darnton, who is a historian and is also now the head librarian at Harvard. And he wrote a book called The Case for Books because he was involved with all the antitrust disputes with Google when they were trying to get all the copyrights and make every book digital and free and open to everyone. He argues, and for now, I'm, I guess I'm convinced of this, that there's not necessarily an antagonism between digital and print media, that the two can and perhaps always have operated in a symbiotic way. And so I think people will read different kinds of things on different kinds of media. And I think that's all right. But if you really want to have a book that lasts, that can't be changed and modified, print is the way to go. That's where the real discussions that set the terms, the debate going forward into the future, that's where it happens. So I do have an iPad, but when I read, I guess, uh, newspapers and magazines, that's about it. I can't read without marking up a book. I mean, a, a serious book. I have to have a pencil in my hand. It's difficult to think. I feel like I can't remember anything unless I'm reading with a pencil. I love books. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.